What team are you on? Captain America? Or Can I be Iron on Loki Man? team? No. Oh, really? I like Loki. He's fun. Yuck. Gross. I do like Captain America, though. He's my favorite. I, I love Iron Man. He's <laughs> great. 100% team Thanos. Hello, and welcome to Inconclusive, the podcast where we randomly select topics and argue about them. Coming up Inconclusive, my name is James. My name is Abigail. And my name is Candace. All three of us are educators at an international school in Taiwan and bring wildly different perspectives to the table. It is important to note that our individual opinions do not necessarily reflect those of our employer. Okay, let's begin. Welcome back, listeners. We are here, or I am here, Candace, with James and Abigail. Hey. Hi. And today we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to continue our series on information. And today's topic is genetic privacy, which is also known as DNA rights versus the common good. To start, we're going to define some terms. First off, DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, and it is the carrier of genetic info in your 23 chromosomes. We'll also define genetics. Genetics is the study of heredity and inherited characteristics in a person. And lastly, we have the common good. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, common good, that which benefits society as a whole, is the contrast to private good of individual and sections of society. And here's a little nugget from Wikipedia. I know we don't like using Wikipedia source. I'm saying this. I'm saying this to myself. I don't like using Wikipedia, but I thought this paragraph was kind of interesting. In contemporary American politics, the idea of the common good or public wealth is sometimes adopted by political actors on the progressive left to describe their values. Uh, Jonathan Dolenti argues that one should distinguish in American politics between the common good, which may be shared wholly by each individual in the family without it becoming a private good for any individual family member. So that's one option. And the collective good, which is, uh, though possessed by all as a group, it's not really participated in by the members of a group. It's actually divided up into several private goods, which when apportioned to the different individual family members make it up. Can, can you explain that again? So there's collective good, and then there's um, common good. So common good would be everyone gets a piece of the pie, so to speak, whereas collective good, no one sees the piece that would be attributed to them. They just see the pie as a whole and are told this is for you as a group. So like national health care yes. would be I guess common good, right? Because you all get yes, to it would a piece be of it, good. but maybe taxes would be collective good. Like, you know they do something good for you, but it doesn't necessarily feel good as you're paying the taxes. That's an excellent example. And for our listeners, national health care in Taiwan, we all benefit from it, and we all pay for our national health care membership, so to speak, each year. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) threw a lot of terms at you, but first, what are your initial thoughts concerning uh, DNA rights or genetic privacy? I really don't know a lot about this area. haven't really formulated... Any opinions, but I guess I'll use the next 45 minutes to do so. (laughs) I think I don't have any really strong opinions on this yet, so I'm excited to talk about it too. But um, I I already know that I'm going to be a little bit torn because I'm generally a common good person. Like, you know, sacrifice a little bit of your freedom to make the lives of others better. But it also makes me really nervous with some of the things that I do know about DNA collection and the way that it can be used. Um... 
that makes me feel uncomfortable. So part of the reason I picked this topic because I knew that it would it would make us uncomfortable to consider the implications. I'm looking forward to talking about this. So first off, I want to ask you all, where do you think uh, the line is between um, your personal liberty and the common good? I think that's the very question I struggle the most with. <laughs> that right there. <laughs> um, because, you know, if, if there was something that I could do that I knew would benefit society as a whole, I think I would want to do it. I think, okay, I think I'm okay with giving up my liberty as long as I know that I'm giving them up, like, to be able to benefit other people. I think that when you're not told as to what's happening or what it's being, what is being done with it and how it is benefiting the common good, I think that would be where my line would cross. I think, in general, I lean more on the side that if you want to give up your personal liberties... Uh, that's great. If you want to be a benevolent, caring person to society, that's great. Um, but I don't think it's right for someone else to force you to give up your personal liberties for a common good, especially if you disagree with their the vision of a common good that they are they're projecting. Yeah, mm-hmm. valid valid points. So let's dive into the implications. Wait, of what this. do you think? <laughs> well, the, I'm actually, uh, I think I'm in the pro DNA rights category. I think meaning like, that like I'd rather everyone be able to have their DNA privacy. kept private okay. and have genetic privacy and no, no overhead group have knowledge of DNA. But I also know that some of the points I'm going to bring up are about the good that's that DNA use has brought out. And but it's so it, it's a sword. It's two edged. It's got it, it both cuts and and does good things at the same time. I guess. But, but I a, sword a sword doesn't. <laughs> I guess like a, sword a sword only it cuts. cuts and heals you. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's two edged. It's double edged. Like it cuts both ways rather than just cutting one side. Like everyone, I feel like is hurt in some way through DNA collection, and whether they know it or not, in the long term or short term. And I'll talk about the long term in a second. Hmm. So first off, how do you think DNA? should be used, like DNA collection, which I guess I should start by saying um, back in the 80s, uh, scientists discovered that there was a way to um, match people's uh, DNA to to other spots so they could tell when someone had um, left part of their DNA at a crime scene. And then in the 90s, they started the genome mapping sequence, which took literally, I think, a decade and billions of dollars. They said um, in the process of them um, creating the mapping sequence, they discovered certain markers of certain diseases in the DNA sequence. They could tell whether or not someone has a predisposition towards a certain disease before Mm. they start to show ailments of that disease, which Mm. could mean that you as an adult, if you are thinking about having children, then you could go get tested for um, a disease that you could pass down to your kids and you could use that in your decision whether or not to have kids. So that's one implication of DNA use, but how do you all think that DNA should be used? I think my gut response is it should be similar to... Uh, organ donation or like blood donation where it's a voluntary act. You sign up for it knowing that it will be used 
to help someone who needs it. Abigail? Then again, I don't I don't feel like I know like all the details of what DNA like all the scope of that. I feel like for public safety, oof, okay. Yeah, and, pass. And scientists Can I pass first? <laughs> scientists don't know either. They don't know all that the D, uh, our DNA holds. We only know about 2% of the DNA markers in in the DNA sequence. So our map, it, while it's huge, we only can see about 2% of the map and that is really terrifying that to know really how terrifying. much we don't know but still have access yeah, to. Yeah. Um, I think my gut reaction is similar to James in the sense that I think you should be able to sign up to voluntarily donate, not be forced, right? Like, you know, you're born and we take a clipping of your hair and we're going to take the DNA out of it and do whatever like that. I don't think that should be happening. I don't know if it is, but I don't think that should be happening. Would, would like fingerprint samples be included kind of in the idea? Because like... I mean, I think DNA is more detailed than your fingerprint because your fingerprint just identifies you. Uniquely. But your DNA both identifies you but also has these indicators of diseases Mm -hmm. and ancestry and all that kind of stuff. Technically, the the thing I described before where scientists realized that they could map or they could um, match samples of DNA to each other, that's called a DNA fingerprint. So Mm. scientists call it that. But it is different from a fingerprint in that it is... I guess more difficult to plant a fingerprint at a crime scene, and we'll, we're going to talk about crime more later. But whereas DNA could, you could take someone's spit and then yeah. put it in a crime scene, and it would be um, irrevocable proof, I guess, that you were there. And that's kind of the problem with it right now. And we'll be right back after this break. <laughs> Welcome to Currently Reading with Abigail. Today's book is In the Country by Mia Alvar. Alvar's debut collection of stories explores the universal experiences of loss, displacement, and the longing to connect. These nine unforgettable stories from Alvar vividly give a powerful voice to the men and women from the Philippines. In the pages of her book lie exiles, immigrants, and wanderers uprooting their families from the Philippines to begin new lives in the Middle East, the United States, and elsewhere and sometimes turning back again. See you next time. Welcome back, listeners. Before the break, we were talking about uh, deoxyribonucleic acid and its use in um, understanding the genetic code of people and how it has been collected and what we think about uh, its use versus um, and understanding the common good versus your individual personal liberties with your genetic code. Um, So I wanted to start with talking about two companies that currently collect DNA information and genetic information. One is Ancestry.com and the other one is 23andMe. My dad actually, last fall... Did or got a DNA kit, and he did it and found out that something about our genetics that was really funny. That uh, he had always said that we had this uh, ancestral heritage, and there was none of that. We all laughed about it and thought it was funny. But other people have found out um, really horrifying or surprising or good things from doing twenty three. Like from their family history. Yeah, I'm not familiar with twenty three and. 
Oh, so what you do is you spit into a small vial and then you send it to the company and they send you back a report and you can pay certain levels to get certain levels of information from the report. Interesting. I feel like when it first came out, there was a huge rash of like siblings who didn't know that they were siblings finding each other because of promiscuous parents or sperm donation. And I feel like I remember reading like it was one of them were like engaged, like a couple who was engaged and they found out that they were actually related, like with like first cousins or something because of covered up promiscuity in the family. That is mortifying. Yeah. Is that allowed if you're genetically cousins or you just have to be no like genetic? You can't be genetic. 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 Because that's the whole point, right? Is that your genetics are too close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, that's terrifying. So, so there's been lots of stories like that where people uh, find out, uh, and they may find long lost family, or they may find out, um, they they may like discover things about themselves that are really important and good and valuable. But then you also may find out that uh, you have like a or like good example, another good example, J Lo, Jennifer Lopez. She got a double mastectomy, I think maybe seven or eight years ago, because after getting uh, DNA testing, she found that she had an 87% chance of developing breast cancer. So mm-hmm. she preemptively got a double mastectomy so that she wouldn't have to worry about developing breast cancer, which I think mm-hmm. her prerogative. And it was uh, because of research that she did for herself mm-hmm. and said that it was a good decision. But here's the catch. Ancestry.com and 23andMe have a long, long contract that, like classic modern-day people, we never read. Nobody has read, as far as I can tell. just agree to the terms and agreements. Correct. (laughs) And one of the things in their terms and agreements that they've emphasized any time this comes up in the news, they say, um, we don't share your information with companies or with outside groups unless you give consent. And that's literally what you have to do in order to use their products. You have to give consent. So there's there's fine print in both of their documents that allow them to do something with COVID-19 recently. Okay, wait, I want to I clarify real quick. So when you click agree mm-hmm. on the terms and conditions and terms or terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. Terms and, yeah, whatever. Whatever it is. When yeah. you agree to it. That is the consent for them selling it to companies and businesses. That is not that is not agreeing that with your consent they'll do it. It's the actual That's consent, the consent itself. Giving. That seems to be the consent, yes, because they just recently started doing something which seems like a next level um requirement that you would get secondary permission from your clientele to do, but they just did it because they decided to. So it has to be somewhere in their agreement already. Oh man. So okay, what did they do? <laughs> so both companies with COVID-19, they dumped all of their DNA databases in like they, all of their DNA database they put together to research for um, looking for a vaccine for COVID. It's, it's a worthy cause, but people are freaking out because it's millions of people or, or hundreds of thousands of people that their DNA sequencing is getting used to look for asymptomatic uh, COVID-19 spreaders versus the people that immediately died after getting it. And they're trying to figure out what genetic marking is in their mm. code to make the, some people not have any symptoms. Some people have really bad symptoms and some people immediately die after like a week. I guess my, at this point, I feel like my, my response is like, what information does DNA contain other than like who you are and what your body is physically composed of? Mm. And why is that private? So I want to, I agree with that 
that was kind of the same question I was having. And I think even maybe a next level is that we kind of dump DNA everywhere we go because every time we sweat or you shed like 150 hairs a day or yeah, something. Yeah, I guess every time we use a public bathroom. Sneeze, mm-hmm. right? Like even I think like if you wash Not your Not if hands, you sneeze into a mask and dispose of the mask safely. But then if you dispose of the mask safely. After disin- disinfecting it with but that, fire. <laughs> fire, <laughs> I, I burn yes. all my masks. <laughs> Just kidding, I don't. But yeah, you kind of dump it everywhere. Mm-hmm. But that's that's unwitting collection if someone were to take your mask afterward and take your DNA from that. That'd be like someone, like in spy movies, when well, we I see someone put a gloved thumb finger right, right. on and then they peel off your thumbprint uh, and then they use it somewhere else. To like, access something that yeah. only but, you but can... I'm, oh, okay. But I'm wondering, like, what can you... Uh, the I mean, same if we had, like, DNA-locked bank accounts... That would Which, be concerning. Like, we're, are we there? But that's that's the problem too. Okay. Is okay. that um, so? A we don't know everything that our DNA sequence holds. So we know at least in that two percent of the map that it holds our likelihood of developing diseases and cancers mm-hmm. or or other things, sure. as well as our uh, proclivity in certain personality traits. It can tell whether or not you are uh, bent towards wildness or being being like uh f- feeling like freedom can you, can you or, define wildness <laughs> you know, like flamboyance not, not flamboyance so much as like uh uh outgoingness uh yeah, yeah. wanting to like adventure trait. it can like literally say whether or not you're bent in your personality trait is going to go one way or another but it also the problems of that we're already having with that two percent is imagine that you are an insurance company and you have oh, the DNA information rates. that yeah. says this person has a 90% chance of developing cancer. I'm going to increase their rate because they're going to need it down the road. Capitalism. There's very little mm. protection right now from the U.S. government against genetic bias, genetic, mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't know, so discrimination. I mean, I've basically the, the, the debate in that area is, is it fair for insurance companies to expand their... Uh, list of like pre-existing conditions to your DNA and the potential exactly. pen- potentiality of you developing a certain That's the problem. disease. And okay. plus, Ancestry.com and 23, or 23andMe has said that they have a 40% variance in, in their um, testing. So you, you could test po- false positives for a bunch of different potential diseases oh, it may in not your be company. Accurate. Yeah, it may not be accurate. And your, com- your insurance company may say, well, you have this bent for this specific cancer, so we're going to increase but your rate. insurance and you companies should not be increasing rates just because they think that you should get sick. That, I feel like that's a whole different kind of a thing. Yeah. You know. It is the other problem of it. So it can affect your insurance if they know about it because of pre-existing conditions. Insurance companies are trying to fight for the right to be able to look at your DNA in th- that sequence, as well as they're like 23andMeAncestry.com selling your information to companies. They already have gotten permission. If you, if you ever have used 23andMe, like my dad using 23andMe, at least some companies, anybody that they have sold information to could have access to at least part of my genetic code through my dad. It's so uncomfortable. It's crazy to think about. Well, it's but crazy. I mean, what are they going to, what are they going to do with it? So imagine a future where everything that we are allowed to do, like let's start with COVID. So imagine that they find out that uh, population A has asymptomatic 
uh, gene for COVID and that they could still carry it, but not have problems. Let's oh, then, imagine then they quarantine you. Then they like, imagine that you have that genetic marker oh. that's uh-huh. that type C and type C is like immediate death. And so people stop, like they say, put all the C's together. They start uh-huh. dividing the whole society into groups based on whether or not A's you're going to survive. So was that, okay. So then exactly. would that be for the common good? Here is my problem. Because you're preserving maximum amount of life in society, right? But like, what about is the is that the argument? That's, that's the like that's the problem. I mean, what I don't about think the they C's? should. I don't think they're allowed to like deprive you of basic human rights. I mean, if they round up all the, if they're like, okay, if you're A type versus a C type, you like for your own good, do not encounter the other type. But or, I think that where 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 that goes into is then. If you're A-type, you can, if you go to the grocery store, doesn't COVID, like, live on cardboard for a certain amount of, like, a time? So you go through the cereal aisle during A Mm -hmm. people's time to go, and then a C person comes and can die. Yeah. And you know, and you have that information, and you know. See, I think that's kind of where it gets sketchy for me. If you don't know, it's like, uh, be careful, wear a mask, sanitize, do Mm -hmm. the best. But then if you know, and you allow an A person to go to the store, Mm -hmm. knowing that they could be asymptomatic, and knowing that a C person is coming later, is it more responsible to then keep A's from ever being anywhere where a C would be, yeah. which is an elimination of certain rights sure. or a change of how rights or dividing by city yeah. or dividing whatever. It's discrimination on a different level. It's, it's discrimination on a genetic level. And with that, we are going to take another break. And welcome to the segment called Words Are Hard with Candice where I share an interesting word or phrase. Today's word is actually a phrase. It's modus operandi. Modus operandi means a particular way or method of doing something, and it's a Latin phrase meaning way of operating. One example of a modus operandi is driving on the left side of the road in the U.S. Modus operandi. And we're back. Thank you for sticking with us through a very interesting conversation about the implications of data collection at the genetic level. Or perhaps your genetics predetermined you to stick around for this long because you're more disposed to patients. Good job. Yikes. <laughs> but I don't know that. We were talking before <laughs> the break about how uh, what, what you would do if you knew that your DNA collection or genetic study could help others. But what about if you don't know? I want to bring up the example of Henrietta Lacks. She is the reason that we have uh, cancer research today. Her cell line is known as the HeLa cells, and it is uh, the reason for two Nobel Peace Prizes, as well as uh, millions and millions, billions of dollars of uh, health and medical research around the world, as well as thousands of lives saved because of her cells. But she did not know her cells were being collected. She had no idea. She went in for, uh, went to a doctor and did not want to go to the doctor and felt that she needed to because something was wrong. She had a lump and they tested her, but they didn't believe there was anything wrong, sent her back home. She came back saying that the lump was really painful. They finally put her on the operating table, found the lump. She died on the operating table, but they, the doctor harvested the the cancer and realized that it was what we call, I guess, the first immortal human cell line like it has continued to replicate for the last 70 years and if you wrapped her yes if you wrapped her cell line around or or in a straight line it would go all the way around the earth i 
think multiple times, many, many times. That's how many cells have been made just from those, people. Those, that was taken from the lump that yes. she asked to be removed? Yeah, so her cancer okay. cells, they are continuing to replicate. So she so asked to have that lump removed? She didn't ask for it to be removed. She asked for the pain to go away. She said, I think oh, I have a okay. lump. You need to test it. And I think there's, like, cancer is... In any kind of lumps, when you get any kind of a surgery or whatnot, unless you're signing, unless you're specifically signing away some sort of a form, um, is it's HIPAA law that says it has to be disposed of. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and this doctor kept it. And this doctor kept it. So it's against. Well, oh, I see. Uh, what year was it? It was, was 51. It but at that point, it was still illegal to illegal to, to harvest cancer cells without the patient's knowledge. And he harvested it after her death. Mm-hmm. Right, which would yeah. be without her knowledge or her right. and her family's knowledge. Yeah. Which, I think who she got the Nobel Prize. No, he got the Nobel Prize. The other people that used her. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I think that doctor didn't make got fired. Actually, I think he made a lot of money because I think he cut pieces of the cell line and, oh, and like, sent it them. to be sold off to different people because he was like, guys, researchers, you need to use this, and so yeah. he sold it and mm, made a lot for of the money common that way. good. Right? That's like his. That's like the rationale, though, maybe. Well, he I mean, was profiteering. He would have been profiteering well, off of it. And if I remember, so well, I, read I mean, a, it can be both. You can profit off of. I think that it's really tricky. The I think it's good. really tricky to say, though, that it's for the common good if you're if you are profiting off of it. And I think that because if you're true, if you are truly doing it for the common good, you don't necessarily need the profit. Or sure. want the profit. You're just trying to make life better. If you're doing it to make profits I and, mean, hey, a side effect is that it's helping the com- – it's for the common good. I mean, I feel like like when – as teachers, we – our job is uh, what I would – I mean, I would consider our jobs to be for the good of our students, but we also get paid. And it's – I would say it's both. But I would say that there's – there's a difference between a teacher's salary and, like, profiting off of something else. And this doctor knew he was breaking the law. Keep in mind, like we're not breaking the law by teaching our students. He knew he was breaking the law, but he also didn't believe that she uh, was a part of the law because she was African American. Yeah, I was going to say oh, that's well, a really I mean, another that's important the big problem there. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. that's part of the problem there. Mm-hmm. I still think it's an interesting dynamic between profiting off of something and having it be for the common good. I think it's like when you do. I mean, we when can't you judge someone's altruistic. primary. We can't judge someone's primary motive. I think it's the, to me. It's the same idea as if you like walk past. I know this is totally a tangent, but if you walk past a homeless person and you donate money because you see someone is taking a video of you, like that mm-hmm. isn't. I mean, it doesn't change the fact that you've given money to this homeless person. It doesn't change the amount of money that they're going to be able to buy food with or whatever. Like the good has been done. But but it makes, for me, it makes me feel like your motives are sketchy. Is there common good being ha- happened because of the la- the HeLa cells, the mm-hmm. HeLa the Gila line, right? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. But was he really doing it for the common good, or was he doing it to line his pockets in a in a positive side effect? We'll never this? know. And, but if I remember right, in a, so I read a book about Henrietta Lacks. Sorry, just to be clear, I'm not trying to. I'm not defending this doctor for breaking the law. I'm merely trying to poke at the question of profit versus common good. Yeah. Because those are not, to me, they're not necessarily I don't opposites. think, and I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. I think it's more looking at the heart of why you're doing it. Are you doing it more right. for the profit right. or more for the common Which good? Which we can't know. So we really can only judge by the outward but back, and but words back of to a, of a person. Our yeah, topic. Sorry. Poor Candace. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> this is this is on topic. We're still talking about Henrietta and the implications of her life. But I want to go back to your question of uh, profit versus the common good. 
the the crazy thing about Henrietta's cells is that um so the 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 researcher who wrote this book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, it was published I think seven or eight years ago. Um, she went to meet the family of Henrietta. She, she assumed that they uh, were living in a mansion somewhere, that they had made a ton of money off of their their mom's uh, mm-hmm. uh, cells. They were living in dilapidated homes. They uh, There was no recognition of who she was. They kept very quiet about the whole thing. In fact, most of her, their, her family had no idea that any of this had happened. They had no idea who who she was and started learning about the HeLa cells through uh, news articles that the researcher, Rebecca Sklute, would come bring to them. And they they were shocked and upset and angered. And they've just recently in the last few years been able to get um, recognition for their mom because her mom their mom was never referred to in any medical journals. Mm. There was one mention by this doctor in a letter, I think, at some point. But other than that, it's always called HeLa cells because he abbreviated her name, H-E-L-A, HeLa. But no recognition for her uh, or for the no money for the family for uh, cells that were taken from them, mm-hmm. all of the research that had been done in their mom's name. So they just now, I think, there are institutions named after Henrietta Lacks. I think maybe there's a hospital named Henrietta Lacks Hospital, something like that. And um, I hope the doctors there abide by laws. I hope so too, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like the amount, the staggering amount of money that's been made off of her cells, it, there's, there's no way, there's no restitution for that family as far as that goes. But there, I think that they still have rights to how their mom's cells get used today. If she was never asked for how those cells get used, because they're technically closer to those cells than they are to the people in the room. Like they have more genetically in common with the cells that are in the, in the, in in the dish, the Petri dish, than the people that are saying that they get control over them. And a couple of uh, years ago, her DNA uh, genome full thing, the billions and billions of lines of data was published. And it wasn't until after her family said, hold up, you published our entire mom's DNA sequence without our permission. The people who have part of our DNA sequence now published for all these medical journals to see. And no one questioned it at all when it went through journals, it went through conferences, people went Peer, to panels, those journals are like peer reviewed. reviewed yeah. No one questioned it. No one thought about it and thought, what are we exposing here? So I wonder about how direct the connection is between the research and her family's rights because I think a few things. I don't know a lot about this case. Uh, from what it sounds like, it doesn't sound like they're profit, profiting necessarily directly off of her cells. They're profiting off of the research that her cells enable them to do. Uh, right? Secondarily. But the doctor, very first thing, was profiting off of her cells. Like he right, would by just giving them, them out. But I think the outcome of that action is advanced medical research, right? Mm-hmm. And that in itself is not directly a product only of her cells, right? Like her cells were required it, they were like in the, the process. They were the supplies. And in, in a sense, in a very like inhumane sense, she provided the materials unwillingly that the doctors used 
to construct cancer medicine or treatment? Or? Yeah, they used her cells to figure out chemotherapy. They, sure. they figured out all of these different treatments using her cells. So are, are they saying that the family ought to have a share of that profit? Well, the, the researcher that wrote the book didn't make any claims about even the family's rights, but just was struck by the contrast. The fact that billions and billions of dollars are, are spread throughout the world in medical research with cancer. So much money is put into cancer research. So much money has gone towards uh, cancer hospitals and everything else. And this family was living in shacks in the middle of nowhere and weren't getting food on the table. And we'll be right back after this break. Hi, and welcome to Jokes and Jocular Facts with James. Today's joke is, what did the DNA say to the other DNA? Do these genes make me look fat? Today's jocular fact is, a Greek-Canadian man invented the Hawaiian pizza. There will always be fierce debates over whether or not pineapple has any place on a pizza, but there's no question about where the Hawaiian pizza originally came from. Chatham, Ontario, Canada. Restaurant owner Sam Panopoulos was born in Greece, but moved to Canada when he was 20 years old. And in 1962, the entrepreneur decided to put pineapple on pizza. Panopoulos, who passed away in 2017, once told the BBC, We just put it on, just for the fun of it. See how it was going to taste. We were young in the business, and we were doing a lot of experiments. The name apparently came from the brand of canned pineapple that Panopoulos used on that fateful day he invented the Hawaiian pizza. This has been Jokes and Jocular Facts with James. We'll catch you next time. And we're back. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the case of Henrietta Lacks, that uh, her genome sequence was recently published. And uh, I think the group that published her DNA sequence apologized and made it private again, but not until, or not before many groups around the world already had access to it and could see all of the genetic material of Henrietta Lacks. Um, so one downside I think that we're seeing is the lack of privacy but there's also a good side to DNA matching for people and I wanted to bring up DNA profiling so the Golden State Killer was uh, someone who was recently I think maybe last year two years ago I'm not sure how long ago it was uh, that was caught using DNA profiling that they matched uh, DNA at the crime scene, at one of the crime scenes, with a DNA database and uh, found a dozen or so relatives that were related to this person that they didn't know who it was. And then using those 12, they kind of triangulated on this one man who was a police officer. And he had killed uh, many people, as well as raped many people, as well as harmed many other people. (laughs) It was kind of crazy that he was able to run for so long. Abigail, yeah. fill, fill so, us in more Golden, on this. Golden State refers to California, correct? Yeah, okay, yeah. just for non-American audiences out there. Yes. He had more than 13 victims who he murdered, and he Yikes. had raped more than 50 people. Um, and he had also, on top of all of that, 
burglarized, being broken in, and at the very minimum broken in, if not also stolen, from over 120 people. Wow. Um, terrible guy. Yeah, terrible. And his span of the crimes was over a 12-year period. Wait, guy, period. gal? Guy. Guy, okay. Um, I mean, could have guessed. His name but. is Joseph James D'Angelo. He was 72 when he was apprehended. Dang. And he, but it had been like 34 years because he was... Um, his last case was in 1984, the last known victim, and he was caught in 2018. Dude, that's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember hearing about this a little bit because it was like this old, kind-looking grandpa person that they like <laughs> pulled out of the home, and he had been attributed to these like... Moral of the story, never trust old-looking people. No, Like not Disney, at all. all the old-looking people are evil, evil true, witches and stuff. Fun fact, um, Malcolm Gladwell in his book... Uh, about talking to strangers, he described the fact that judges, when they're allowed to look at the person that is on trial, they make the wrong decision more often than if they just had... That's really interesting. The, ...their case in front of them, the case file. That looking at someone actually clouds our judgment rather than... I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But they... So where it kind of gets interesting as far as the DNA goes is that they were able to, using newer technology than, you know, the 80s, in the California's DNA database, were able to start tying. So, so he was he was one person, but he had they thought he was three or four different people. Um, they didn't realize it was all under one person until they started looking at the DNA databases and realizing that the common the only common factor between like some of these cases that were attributed to these different criminals. Not anyone specifically, but other cold cases that they didn't think had anything similar with each other was his DNA. And so that was how they were able to to pull all of them together was because in 2001, um, the DNA testing indicated that the East Area Rapist, who was the... 50 rapes and the original night stalker which would have been the burglaries mm. and him were all the same person it wasn't actually three different criminals wow. dang he's like if the avengers were all like separate superheroes and find out he is just the avenger and he's you all mean of them. super villains yeah i don't know what the super villain group would be called <laughs> like suicide squad i guess maybe they're all one they're super all... horrible person wait are you saying the avengers are super villains no, we're saying that he's oh. a supervillain. Oh, I was like, that's our next episode is whether or not the Avengers are, <laughs> ooh, what team are you on? Captain America? Or Can I be Iron on Loki Man? team? No. I'm oh, gonna... really? I like Loki. He's fun. Yuck. Gross. I do like Captain America, though. He's my favorite. I, I love Iron Man. He's <laughs> great. 100%. Team Thanos. But we've talked Team about Team Thanos. Oh, true. This is not the first common time good. we've talked common about this. Good. Hey, common, common good. good. Okay, so back to back to So with the Golden State Killer, he was caught because of DNA profiling, but the implications of using DNA profiling in criminal lawsuits are a little bit funky. I want to clarify, it wasn't actually DNA profiling that caught him. So DNA profiling and DNA forensics, there's two mm. different things. So the, so what he was is he had left a DNA on all of them and they were able to test it and see that it was the same person. Right. That's like forensic hard evidence. But carrying people's DNA, like genetic makeup, like as a, as a fingerprint on file, like that's the part I think is DNA profiling. I think DNA profiling, I think, because I think there's another thing, maybe I'm thinking of something a little different, but maybe it's a different name, but it's where they can, they keep track of your traits, of traits of 
cri like criminal profiling. So they say you have these certain traits, and as they've linked more markers of DNA to them, that yeah, that's not DNA profiling. The like um, what one source that I found said was that um, when you ha when you collect DNA from databases and then you put it in or from scenes, put it in a database, then the problem that comes out with DNA they called it DNA profiling okay. was that. Imagine that you were a child whose DNA was discovered mm -hmm. at a crime scene and you had no part in the actual crime. But by being in the database, um, insurance companies, other groups that could get access to knowing what names are in this list or why they're in this list, they may automatically increase your rate because you are in associated with a crime. You're yeah. in the same way that being a criminal, you sometimes get turned down for job interviews or uh, aren't allowed to be a tenant at a specific building, the landlord says, no, you can't have a criminal record. Just by being in the database, it could be claimed that you have a criminal record. So doesn't that just mean that they just need a better job? They need to do a better job categorizing the database? Because, I mean, the same thing happens with TSA. Sometimes they'll pull people aside, like infants who have the same name as some person on a no-fly list. Mm -hmm. And they're like, hey, your four-year-old got a triple quadruple s on their boarding pass <laughs> like um mackenzie's younger brother had that he got like pulled aside because his name i guess was on the list for something but hmm. like that's terrifying you know, he you know he was just a little kid what did he do Is he nothing just, like terrifying? well he was they were just like hey you have this on your boarding pass we have to pull you for additional screening and all this kind of stuff you had to hmm. sit in an empty room for like five ten minutes just waiting for an agent to hmm. but to me that's like a human that's a human error that should be... F I mean, I, I mean... But that's the problem, is that, like, the criminal justice system is full of human error. Like, just corruption in general, let alone human error, makes problems that, that um, make people go to prison for crimes they didn't commit. And mm. DNA has exonerated... Because their DNA was there. Yeah, and DNA evidence has exonerated some people yeah. from sure. death row, yeah. from life imprisonment. But it also could pose problems of people planting your DNA at crime scenes and mm. they and you're like, well, I can't refute it because that's my DNA. Whereas yeah. a thumbprint or fingerprints, like you can tell you can someone wasn't there. Those. I mean you could it's but significantly it, harder. Significantly harder. And yeah. you can kind of tell with a lot of the ways that people plant evidence. Whereas with DNA you can't tell because spit is spit. Like it could come down to the ground in any way. Whereas like other things, it's more difficult to plant. I mean, to me, there's no way to solve that other than acknowledging that DNA may not be the only determiner on, on a crime scene. And right? acknowledging like, that people are the determining factor of, of things going wrong. I mean, I feel like that's true of any system. Yeah, that people because people are corrupt and because people make mistakes, like honest mistakes, simple mistakes. So you're saying that are you? I mean, are are we arguing that the police should not have a DNA database? That 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 the bad outweighs the good in this scenario. Well, I think that well, I think that maybe the bigger question, something that I think popped into my head as you were talking about this, is I don't think that. DNA that is used for criminal investigations should ever be sold to any kind of companies for anything at all. Like, mm -hmm. I think that insurance companies should never have the ability to look at that. It shouldn't be public record. Um, the same way that some other things are, because there are more areas for human error in DNA collection than there are in some other... Like, 
like a driving security record. foot camera camera or dental mm-hmm. records like there's yeah. really almost no margin for error and, right and there's no there's nothing else beyond those things like the the characteristics that we've found that you can tell by that person like with a thumbprint you can or with a handprint you can tell whether or not someone's a waiter or a waitress or that they work with blow torches or something with significant heat because you can see a lack of fingerprints on the actual mm-hmm. thumb pads and whatever else you can tell with dental records whether someone had uh, mouth cancer or if they smoked or or if they were a certain age. But those are clear characteristics that we can all tell. We still have no idea what is in a DNA like genome sequence. We have no idea all that our DNA could tell us. And the fact that a government group has that without us knowing what is in it and has minors in yeah. it that were at the crime scene that weren't involved in the crime, but still they're in the system. The, anytime a government or a larger body has uh, power over another group that we don't know the full extent of, that makes me worried. Makes me worried too. I think, I think that I do support it though in the case of being able to help find criminals because I think there has been more cases of it being used up to this point because since insurance companies and et cetera, et cetera, aren't yet buying it to hurt or marginalized groups. Although it, I, I can see that as being like a, a very, something that will happen. I'm sure mm-hmm. um, I would be surprised if it doesn't happen, but since there isn't that yet, I think that there's more good that has come from that than harm like with the being able to um find like there's been a couple like okay rape cases are really 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 hard to prosecute Mm -hmm. if there's no dna evidence and even with dna evidence it's really really hard to prosecute but if there is none there's like a zero percent chance that it'll ever get prosecuted but with dna like if there's dna evidence or you can use it then um there's a, a much higher significant chance of being able to prosecute those cases I think that point is part of the reason why I'm not totally, I guess, for certain about what side to take this, that whether it should be like personal liberty, everyone's DNA uh, sequence should stay private forever, or if we should pool together all of our database together so that we can find a COVID-19 uh, vaccine faster or uh, make significant improvements in medicine faster because of shared knowledge or a shared database. Yeah. I think it's really tough. I think that I have no clear point as to what I would come down on either side. I think both are, have equal good and equal bad potential for equal good and bad. Uh, I think consent is most important. Well, to close this out, I've got a quote from a book called um, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. It's from the Director of National Intelligence uh, from mid-2010 to 2017, James Clapper. He writes, uh, the, the, the context of this was uh, thinking about Edward Snowden and dumping the private or the uh, top secret uh, documents from national intelligence out onto WikiLeaks. Uh, so here's the quote. The question for me is, to what extent are we as a society willing to sacrifice personal liberties in the interest of common safety? We stop at red traffic lights. We submit to security screenings before boarding airline flights, which represent infringements on our civil liberties and privacy. Would we agree to having an inward-facing domestic intelligence apparatus? Should we? It's a question that would assert itself with increasing frequency in the years after I took the uniform, and I believe the U.S. public has yet to reach a clear and consistent consensus. Let us know what you think. 
about this topic on our social media channels. We're on Instagram at The Inconclusive Podcast and on Facebook at The Inconclusive Podcast. And once again, you've reached the inconclusive end of The Inconclusive Podcast. Sharing is caring. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Inconclusive Podcast. Talk to you next time.